So this will just be like fun.
lectern if you want to use that. Yeah. Really wanted. I was playing electric, and I was like, I really want a reverb pedal because I think it would just sound really good. Yeah, yeah. Messaging people that I know, no one has one. So they're just like, yeah, I don't know. I just don't have one. It's really weird. Get here this morning. I was gonna just about to say, it's, but it sounds like you've got reverb. Yeah. Just okay. A pedal there. Oh, nice. And these ears. Oh yeah, amazing. I think that's a common. season but it just fell apart it, I had a good run and then it fell apart yeah, yeah, and it's fine yeah. I can deal with that in my other one I was top three I have the most points oh, the second most points scored but yeah, the yeah. highest scored against yeah, and yeah, so now yeah. I'm, I'm like four and four losses in a row and yeah, yeah. it sucks Especially, like oh. you would just think, like, auto yeah, automatic. Yeah, it's not, it's not great,
unless you'll come and do that in one sec. No, there's two songs and then there's an awkward silence that I'm going to make everyone have. And then um, I'll do that later on. Church news at the very end. Because no one cares about church news. I'm doing four minutes of silence for everyone. And then we'll, and then I'll um, I'll get you up and I'll pray for you. But yeah, yeah, I know people are going to find this. But yeah. Oh. I love it's awkward silence, so as most people know. So, but then, uh, as Daz said um, before the service, we were talking about this. Well, what about us? We've got four minutes of awkwardness, and then another twenty minutes of awkwardness after that. So, uh, <laughs> I said twenty minutes. I'll only be getting started by then. So, no, <laughs> I'll try and keep it brief. I, I want to get straight into it. I want to um, talk this morning about a guy called Gavrilo Princip. Does anybody know? You might have heard of this guy. Have you heard of this name? There you go. That's what he did. The shot heard around the world. That's right. Pretty interesting backstory to what happened that day. I don't know if you know this, Michael, but it's quite an interesting story. He was this obscure nobody, this Bosnian Serb guy who got involved with this plot to assassinate Franz Ferdinand, who was the heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the time. And Franz Ferdinand and his wife, they're planning to visit Sarajevo and they're going to travel through the town in a motorcade. And so Gavrilo and his mates get together and they hatch this plan to launch bombs at the open-top car. But on the day, the first guy along the route chickens out and just runs off and then they drive past another one of the would-be assassins and he chickens out and runs off as well. Passes a third guy and this guy launches his bomb at the car but it bounces off the back of the folded-up roof on the back of the car and into the crowd and actually injures 20 people. And just as a side note, this is the kind of day that it was. This guy freaked out, ran off, took a cyanide pill and jumped into the river. Only the cyanide pill wasn't strong enough and the river was only five inches deep. And so they pulled him out of the river and actually beat him up. But... um. But Gavrilo, he saw the writing on the wall and realised this is pretty much the definition of a plan going pear-shaped. And so he just withdrew and blended back into the crowd. And he wandered into a delicatessen to get himself something to eat. And um, I don't know what he bought, probably like a sandwich or 
don't know, a sausage? Is that what you'd eat in that? I don't know, something like that. And he, he wanders out of this deli and who would go driving past again but the motorcade of Franz Ferdinand. And the reason they're driving past again is because he and his wife have turned around to go back and actually see how the people who have been hit by the bomb have actually fared. Um, and there's another opportunity missed. Only what happens is the motorcade turns down a wrong street that's a dead end and has to slowly reverse back right into Gavrilo's path. So he's got this just clear view of his target. And so, I don't know, he's got a sandwich in one hand and he's got a gun in his pocket, so he just pulls out the gun and he shoots Franz and his wife dead. And as Michael said, this is the shot heard round, round the world. A few months later, this, well, this shot basically broke a dam of international tension and ill will in Europe at the time. And a few months later, World War I broke out. And most historians believe that World War I in the terms of the armistice was so bad that a second world war was inevitable. And of course, after that, we had the Cold War as well. So this one little obscure Bosnian Serb guy sets off a chain of events that shapes most of the 20th century. It's staggering, isn't it? And we're going to look today at another relative nobody in history, a lowly little peasant girl in a backwater of the Roman Empire. Specifically, we're going to look at Mary's song in Luke chapter 1. And this is often called the Magnificat because of the first line in Latin, which in English reads, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, just how obscure was Mary? We're going to read the text in a minute, so don't worry. But just how obscure was she? Well, Mary is a girl, for starters, in a culture that gives women no legal standing or social status at all. She's probably about 13 or 14 years old. Um, She's from a town that up until this event, classical historians tell us, and I'm going on what they say, that her town has never been mentioned in any other classical literature until this moment in time. That's how much of a nothing town it is. In Galilee, in a relevant district of uh, this fringe province on the edge of the Roman Empire. I don't know if this is a person that you would pick to change the world. And yet this little girl is visited by an angel. And the angel sort of says to her, look, it's no big deal, but you've never been with a man, but you're going to be knocked up. And um, also, just no pressure at all, but he's going to be the Messiah as well. And um, it's hard for us to sort of, I think, understand and encapsulate just how significant that is. Because just like Europe at this time in Palestine, there's like this cauldron, this seething cauldron of ill will towards the Romans and this longing for the promised Messiah to come and liberate them. And every Jew is waiting and longing for this to happen. And the angel says to Mary, guess what? You're going to be the mother of the Messiah. I don't know how, like a 13-ish year old who's just found herself pregnant as well, processes all of this. If the Jews, of course, had thought about it, it shouldn't really have come as a surprise because all of their heroes, or most of them at least, were from similar sort of backgrounds, really. Um, they'd at one point been you know, goat herders, um, small farmers, no-hopers, failures, people who made bad life choices. This are all of the, these are all of their heroes who, at the beginning, were nobodies because actually God rarely works with the beautiful people. The, uh, the influential, the powerful. And there's, there's good reason for that. And we'll get to that. 
So Mary, she goes to visit her relative, Elizabeth, and she shares this news. And, and uh, she hears that Elizabeth herself is also miraculously uh, pregnant as well. And so Mary then responds with this song. And people have said that this song, which we will read, don't worry, um, it's so well formed that it couldn't have been Mary, this young Jewish peasant girl who wrote this. It must have been something that was part of church tradition and inserted later into Luke's gospel. Or maybe there's a bit of a textual error there. And actually what we're reading is an extension of what Elizabeth said before her. Because Elizabeth is older, she's more pious, she's married to a priest, and so she's more capable of putting something like this together. But actually, there's nothing magic going here. And I'm going to do something interesting. Um, oh, I think it's interesting anyway. You tell me if it is. I don't know. I'm going to read you the text now. It's from Luke chapter 1 and verses 46 to 55. And you can open up to that if you want to. But on the screen behind us here, I'm going to put a different text. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. This is the prayer that Hannah prayed when she too got some miraculous news that she was expecting a, an unexpected child. And uh, that child would, of course, go on to be the prophet Samuel. Um, so... Now, Hannah's prayer is much, much longer. There's almost no words that are exactly the same. So it's going to be a little bit difficult. But see if you can follow along and just see if there are some common themes that come out through this. Okay, so let's... Yeah, okay. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold now, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring, forever. I don't know if you picked that up, but there are some things going on there that are similar, aren't there? Like um, recognition, I think, of how God has blessed her, what God wants to do in the world and the special place that they feel that Israel, the king in, in Hannah's text there, in Hannah's prayer, has in the place of God's plans and so on. So there's actually nothing massive going on here. A good Jewish peasant girl who's been raised since she was born on the stories and songs of her ancestors. Of course, when she hears news like this and is visited by an angel, she's going to respond with a remix. I told you I'd use that, Gav. And I did, that was Gav's, Gav's words last week. Uh, a remix. It's a mashup. She's sampling the songs of her ancestors. There's a whole lot of stuff like this back in the Old Testament. And she's pulling it all together in her own sort of song about her own version of the nature and character of God and what he wants to do in the world. And so Mary, she starts her song off, and we'll put that up now, her song. Um, <clears throat> Mary starts with a sense of awe that God, the God of the universe, has looked on her and found favor. And she says that all generations will look on her and call her blessed. Now, we don't know a lot about Mary outside of what is in the Gospels, but I am going to hazard a guess. I think it's a pretty good assumption that she didn't go on from here to great kind of wealth and prosperity. When she's talking about being blessed, that's not what she's talking about. What she's talking about is that blessing for her, her sense of place comes from being found in the plans and purposes of God. 
But she's blessed because God is going to do something through her. And this informs then her view about what God wants for all people. Look at verse 50. This is how, I don't know if the verse numbers are up there. It's probably, uh, yeah. This is how it will be for all people who are faithful and fear God. She recognizes that actually as human beings, we live our best form of humanity in being found in the purposes and place of God because that's what we are created to do. That's who we're created to be. And um, I find it really ironic, I think, that we live in a time today that is in some ways more aware of the value of individuals, the sanctity of human life, than perhaps ever before in all of human history. And yet, we're not getting any better at it. Human misery is all around us. And in some areas, it's worse than ever before. And because we have this sort of vague idea that humans are actually valuable, we get ourselves into all sorts of knots and contradictions. Xenophobia and nationalism is on the rise Again, we see that, of course, in the U.S. and in the U.K. and here as well. And we thought we'd finally put that to bed, but we can't seem to shake it off. We've never been, I think, more aware and sensitive to the history of the way society has treated women and what it means to be a woman in our culture, the way that we have objectified them and exploited them. And we say, we're not going to do this anymore while... We insatiably consume and fight in the streets for the right to consume a steady diet of accessible, violent pornography that has been shown to lead to trafficking and to exploitation. We've never as a society, I think, been more aware and conscious and vocalised the horrible history that we have and the impact of child sexual exploitation. And we say now, look, we're on top of this, okay? This is... This is not going to be allowed to live in the shadows anymore. You know, the largest organization in the world that monitors um, child exploitation online is called the National Center for Exploiting and Missing Children. It's based in Washington, D.C. And this was formed in the late 90s when people began to realize, actually, this internet thing, there's some pretty dark stuff that we can do with this. And so in its early years, late 90s, on average, it received about 10,000 separate individual reports of child sexual exploitation, child imagery, torture, murder, all kinds of horrible things. Think about that, 10,000 different children a year experiencing something like that. It's staggering. In, 1990, in 2007, I should say, this same centre received 9.6 million reports. One year later, in 2018, it received 43 million separate reports. This is where we're going. And you might say, well, John, but that one's a little bit different because we're not all tied up in knots about that. We all agree as a society that that's out. It's just that there are some bad people as well, right? This is not something that we're contradictory about. But this is kind of illustrating my point by going to an extreme. I listened to a podcast recently about some guys who actually broke open the largest child exploitation site online that was on the dark web. And um, as a part of this, is a crushing podcast, but there's parts of it that are really compelling as well and I think necessary for us to hear as well. And they went actually to the prison, or they called up the prison, I should say, and they interviewed the guy who started this site. He's now serving a life sentence, not just for this site, but for a whole lot of other horrible and depraved crimes. 
And this wasn't a guy, as they interviewed him, you could pick up, this wasn't a guy who hated himself and wrestled with the evil that was inside of him. You know, he was calm, he was collected, he was basically indifferent as well to uh, what he'd done and what it had caused. Um, and his response really to the whole thing was basically, and this is sort of paraphrasing, but essentially reading between the lines, what he was saying was, well, you're accusing me of this stuff, but I disagree. Like, I, yeah, you've locked me up in your prison. That You've constructed jails. You've constructed laws. And by your laws, I'm on the wrong side of that. But I don't agree with you. It doesn't make you right. There are some cultures, there are some times where what we've done is, is perfectly normal and acceptable. And in a sense, when we approach justice from the way that the world approaches it, he's got a point, hasn't he? Like, most of us agree on this, but what happens if someone doesn't? What objective basis can I go to him and say, no, every person, every child has value and deserves to be protected from that? If he says, well, I'll check out from that, how can I objectively say that he's wrong? On what basis is he wrong? Or we just all know it. Humans are immeasurably valuable. But value is not something that is intrinsic to us. It's not inherent. And this is not just us. This is everything. Value is imputed by something outside of it. Does that make sense? So, like, money is just bits of plastic. But we've all agreed that they're valuable to, it's valuable to us, right? It's imputed. Gold, this thing that investors retreat to, whenever the markets are going bad, let's buy gold because not, gold will never lose its value, Right? Gold's only valuable because we impute value to it. Gold is actually not even rare. It's quite common. But we say it's valuable. Human beings only have value because something outside of ourselves, God, imputes value to us. That's the starting point for justice. Does that make sense? And so as a society, what we've done instead is we've just detached rights from its anchor point. And so the whole concept is just a drift. It just, it flails about in the wind and we, we, like I said, are all tied up in knots. We abuse people for not treating people well. We commit acts of violence against human beings to protect animals from violence. This is our place of justice. Justice is right and wrong are almost entirely subjective and contextual. But Mary in her song here recognizes that the starting point is that value is found in our place before God and in God finding a purpose for us. But this song is about a lot more than just purpose and place. Because if human beings are so valuable to God, then there's something wrong in the world, isn't there? Even so, this song of Mary's has been called revolutionary. It's said that Russian czars were afraid of this song. During the British rule of India, supposedly, the Archbishop of Canterbury actually instructed Canterbury actually instructed his priests not to preach this from the pulpit in India because of how dangerous he felt that it was. Martin Luther called the Magnificat a song that comforts the lowly and terrifies the rich. So, so why is this song considered to be so revolutionary? Well, let's look at verse 51. He's scattered the proud in their thoughts of their heart. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. The hungry are going to be filled. The rich are going to be sent away empty. And Hannah expresses the same thing in her song, doesn't she? 
the prophets express it all the way through the prophets. Luke in his gospel, the ministry of Jesus, it all comes back to this, that justice for God means the world being turned on its head. Systems being broken, powers being brought down. And I want to be really clear on this because in this dystopian world of sort of Trumpian evangelicalism that we live in today, who knows what really goes to I want to say in no uncertain terms that justice for God always means economic justice as well. Because when we lose that basic human dignity of being able to provide for our families, of being able to keep them safe, of being um, a have-not when everybody else is a have, there's something about the human experience as God intended it to be that's broken, right? And so all through the prophets, all through Jesus' ministry, we see, we see God wanting to restore economic justice as well. And I'm happy to talk about somebody, talk with anybody who, who wants to disagree with me on that. But this is actually Luke's whole jam in his gospel as well. If you want to get a handle on what Luke's about, this is where he's at, that systems will be torn down, that, that powers will be broken. It's only Luke. Look at some of the stories in Luke. It's only Luke who makes special mention of the women who have no social standing in their society who accompany Jesus around on his mission. It's only Luke who has the parables of the Good Samaritan. And the rich man and Lazarus, things being turned upside down. It's only Luke who has the story of of Zacchaeus, you know, this outcast tax collector who no one wants to associate with. And Jesus says, I'll go and dine with you. It's only Luke who has the story of the prodigal son and the lost coin. And in fact, all the lost stories, the lost son in the prodigal son, the lost coin and the lost sheep. And look, I need to apologize for fans of the song. Is it Reckless Love? Is that what that song is called? Those stories are not about, well, they're partly about, but they're not about God just loving me so much that he'll run me down and chase me down because he loves me or um, that God will wait by a, like a desperate puppy dog by the gate so that when I've finished doing what I'm doing and I come back, he'll just slather me with love. That's partly a reflection of God's nature, but that's not what's going on in these stories. All three of these stories in Luke's gospel are preceded by Jesus being accused of dining and mixing and mingling with the wrong people, outcasts, tax collectors, sinners. And Jesus responds with these stories. And what he's saying by them is that the ones who are out are going to be in. The outcasts will be welcomed back again. And in fact, I'm going to go out and bring them in. And for people listening to Jesus at that time, that is revolutionary. And Mary here anticipates that revolution, that the hungry will be fed, that the rich will go away empty. And I have to say, I don't know about you, but I find that unsettling. Because we're not even sort of in the top 50% in this room. We're in probably the top 1% or 2% of the richest people in the world. I am the powerful and the rich in Mary's song. And have you seen what happens when you're on the wrong side of a revolution? Do you see, do you know what happened to the aristocracy during the French Revolution? What happened to the bourgeoisie during the Russian Revolution? Spoiler alert, does not end well. I am so accustomed to this way of life that I don't even have to think about it most of the time. Almost everything I own is a product of exploitation somewhere in the world. I don't have to worry about the effects of climate change that my actions make and what that does to some of the most vulnerable people in the world. I don't have to think about the fact that if I was a woman, anything I've accomplished in life, which isn't much, but anything I've accomplished would have probably would have been twice as hard 
and probably 10 times as hard if I was indigenous. I don't have to put my kids on a boat with criminals just to keep them safe. I just take all of that for granted. I stand in a change room with a pair of jeans on trying to work out if they fit, you know, for like 10 minutes. I sit at a bar trying to decide what drink I'm going to get because there's too many choices there while there's revolution at the door. I see the way the rest of the world lives. I'm not immune to it. It's on my news feeds. It's on my TV. But through my inaction, I just say, let them eat cake. And that is the problem with being rich, isn't it? It's not the material possessions themselves. It's that we become so consumed and fundamentally changed by them that we can't even see the problem in the first place. And that is why God tends to work with lowly peasant girls and the poor and the outcast and the lost. But I wanted to, if for us, maybe that's the place to start with just daily confessing that and recognizing it. Look at verse 52. When powers are cast down, who are exalted? It's the humble. We've got to start with humility, I think. There's another story that's unique to Luke. It's the story of the rich fool. You know the story of the rich fool? The guy who says, look at all this stuff I've got. This is brilliant. I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to put it all in there and store it all up. And that night, his soul is demanded of him. His problem is not in being rich. It's in being a fool. The story actually emphasizes that because it finishes with these words. I'm going to put on the screen. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. See, there is an out there, isn't it? Isn't there? But it's a difficult one. Being rich towards God starts with us daily falling on our knees and giving everything that we have to God and his purposes. It's what we were made for anyway. And I don't think it means giving everything up either. We've already said that God doesn't want a society of haves and have-nots, that actually he wants, doesn't want us to experience economic hardship. That's a part of the kingdom that in a sense, in an in a imperfect way, has been realized for us in the West. But what are we going to do with it? This is the last story I'm going to tell, and then I'm done. Um, in the 90s, I hope it will illustrate what I'm getting at. Because in the 19th century, there was a woman in America called Elizabeth Van Loo, and she lived in a town, which you may have heard of, called Richmond, Virginia. And growing up, her family was wealthy, like really wealthy. And they would host dinner parties at their big mansion that had all of the rich and well-to-do and influences and so forth in town to come to concerts and dinners and exhibitions and all kinds of things. Edgar Edgar Allan Poe actually came and did poetry recitals at their house. It was, you know, that kind of place. And then the Civil War breaks out and Richmond becomes the capital of the Confederate South. And Elizabeth is a Quaker. And her faith has led her to become an abolitionist, which is a really dangerous thing in the South at a time like this. She's on the wrong side. Elizabeth, from there, she had inherited the house and everything from her family. and She continued all these parties and so forth. But she not only freed her slaves, all of her slaves, she had a special fondness for one in particular, and her name was Mary Bowser, and she paid to educate her. She sent her off to Liberia, I think it was, to do some mission work, and when she'd had enough of that, she paid for her to come back. And the two of them, Mary and Elizabeth, became really close friends, and they also became allies. Because with all these parties and social gatherings going on at their house, that environment was ripe for intelligence and information that could help the Union North. 
And so they set about gathering it. They would do things like they would punch little holes in individual letters of books with a pin and then they would send those books up to the north and the people who would open them would string the letters that were pinned together and get the information. She would hollow out eggs and put little messages inside of them and then sort of send them off with somebody to um, pass the eggs on to someone who needed them. And this is deadly work for Elizabeth and for Mary especially. It's treason. Like if they get caught doing this, Mary especially is going to hang and probably Elizabeth too. And then one day, Elizabeth is speaking to the wife of Jefferson Davis. Jefferson Davis is the president of the Confederate South. He is the Abraham Lincoln of the South. And she hears from Jefferson's wife that there's an opening on their house staff. And Elizabeth thinks, I might have just the person for you. But of course, she's freed Mary from slavery, so she doesn't tell her. She goes and speaks with her. And together, they hatch this plan, and Mary voluntarily goes back into slavery to work for Jefferson Davis's household and to gather information. And she sews it. She does it by sewing it into the seams of dresses. And then she sends those dresses off to the seamstress, and she goes and hangs a red shirt on the line. And then Elizabeth will walk past, see the red shirt. She'll go down to the seamstress, who I'm guessing must be in on the whole thing, and collect the clothes and actually pull the messages out. It's said that these two women contributed more to the Union cause in the North than almost any other individual in all of the Civil War, and yet we really don't hear that much about them. Jefferson Davis became so frustrated by this situation that he spent most of the rest of the war furiously searching for a mole in his own ranks. At times, it was said that messages were getting to the North before they were getting to his own troops in the battlefield. That's how efficient the system was. But in all that time, until the end of the war, he never worked out who it was. Do you know why? Because he didn't believe that a black woman could be intelligent enough to pull something like this off. He didn't even see Mary Bowser. So here we have two wealthy, intelligent, powerful people with completely different perspectives. I'm going to go out and limb here and say, I don't even think Jefferson Davis is an evil person. He's a Christian. In the South at the time, slavery and its view of how certain people should be treated was just, um, was just infused, basically, into their theology. It was preached from the pulpit. He was just everyone. He was so acclimatized that he couldn't see revolution happening right under his nose. Elizabeth Van Lu, on the other hand, she was this rare exception, this person who rises above her circumstances. Do you know what happened to her? She lived a long life. She died at age 81, but she never married, and she was, for most of her life, ostracized by the Richmond community. Many Southerners well into the 20th century still considered her to be a traitor, and in her old age, children would walk past her house and call her a witch because of the stories and stuff that their parents had told them. She died wealthy, comfortable, but her decision cost her everything. See what I mean? She used every bit of what she had, every network, every connection, her wealth, risking her own life to break the prevailing system. That's what being rich towards God looks like. We have material resources on a scale that is staggering by historical standards. Imagine what God can do with the networks, the connections, the people that we know, the wealth, the resources of the people just sitting in this room Imagine what part we could play 
in seeing God's justice realized in the world. But we really need to set our minds to it because it's easy for us to lose sight of the fact that I think revolution is at the door. It's Christmas. It's Advent. I don't want to finish on a downer like that. Um, But we need to remember that this time of year, although it is about this, it's about a lot more than just baby Jesus lying in the manger come to save me from my sins because this is God coming in the flesh to turn the world and its systems on its head. This is radical and it's frightening for those of us who have power and have wealth because it needs to be. It needs to shake us out of our complacency. There is a revolution that God has started. And there are only ever two sides in a revolution. We need to make sure that we're on the right one. That's all I want to say today. Um, Let's pray. And uh, then I'll hand it back over to Nick. God, we thank you that you are active in this world, that you will see this world tipped on its head, whether we are a part of it or not. But we thank you too, Lord, that we find our place in being a part of your purposes. And I pray that it is something that we'll be aware of, um, that we'll commit ourselves daily to see happening, and that we will take your message out into the world, Lord, um, through not just um, the, the gospel in a, in a strict sense of forgiving us from our sins, but in in wanting to see systems of justice overturned, in wanting to see people live the fullest life that they can live in, in accordance with your intention for what it means for us to be human, God. We thank you for including us in, in what it is that you're doing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.